Hey guys, what's up? I'm Jordan Crook, and I'm the managing editor here at TechCrunch. I spend most of my days worrying about TechCrunch events, and a big part of my job is determining which speakers would bring the most value to the TechCrunch audience. The ones that can teach entrepreneurs something or tell stories about what they've been through. As you probably know, coronavirus is trying to get in my way, but I'm not gonna let that happen. That's why we're launching a brand new virtual speaker series called Extra Crunch Live. Extra Crunch Live, in a nutshell, is a Zoom call with some of the best and brightest minds in tech, from entrepreneurs to investors. Here's how it's gonna work. We're gonna hop on a Zoom call, broadcast that Zoom call to YouTube. I'll ask some questions, but more importantly, you'll also be able to ask your own questions. So who are we talking to? Well. This week alone, we'll be talking to Aileen Lee and Ted Wang, who are partners at Cowboy Ventures. And later this week, we'll be talking to Charles Hudson, who is a total pre-seed wizard. In the coming weeks, we'll have guests like Mitch and Frida Kapoor, Rulof Botha, Hunter Walk, Mark Cuban, and Kirsten Green. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. We are going big on this, so expect to see many, many more speakers lined up in the coming weeks. Extra Crunch Live is one of the many features that comes along with an Extra Crunch membership, as well as a hundred plus in-depth articles that answer the questions that I think keep entrepreneurs up at night. You can try your first month of Extra Crunch for just $1. I'm really, really excited about Extra Crunch Live and I hope you are too. So see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we each and every week unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I am Alex Wilhelm and joining me this week are my two favorite people in the whole world. We have Danny Crichton, TechCrunch's managing editor. Danny, how are you? Hi, Alex. How are you doing? You know, medium, it stopped raining and uh, it's nearly Friday after this very, very long week, so I'm excited about that. But even better, we have Natasha Mascarenas with us. Tosh, how are you? I'm doing well, a little grumpy, but but here and excited to get through all this fun news. Yeah, we have a lot to get through. Once again, we have one of these shows that isn't like three late stage stories and then everything else kind of crammed in. It's a lot of rounds and funds and that sort of thing. So if you like startups, you're probably going to like this one. And we're going to kick off actually with a roundup of sorts, actually, uh, of ed tech funding, because as Natasha has been reporting for TC, there's been a lot of it. So Tosh, I don't know where you want to begin, but uh, I'm going to hand you this baton. Yes, I will begin with the more timely one. So April and May 1st, when this episode comes out, is around the time when students are starting to commit to colleges. So we're seeing some startups use that as an opportunity to announce new fundings. One this week is Niche. It was founded actually two decades ago. Didn't take VC money for a while, but recently raised a $35 million Series C. Think of it as like a one-stop shop for students to go and compare and contrast their different college opportunities. I like kind of think of it as a glass door for colleges and it's cash flow positive. So that's a, that's a good thing. And uh, if I recall the story, because I read this uh, before we hopped on, it had some pretty fast ARR growth. How fast was it growing uh, before it raised? So it had increased ARR by more than 100%. You know, they went from zero to 1,400 clients in the past three years. I didn't know that until I asked them how they only have 1,400 clients in two decades of operating. Um, (laughs) But it's because they hit their stride and started selling to colleges. 
instead of creating like these physical books about colleges now they're, they're completely digital and i think it's another example of like college marketing chaos well if i, re yeah. if I recall the story correctly they started with a brand called college prowler which is unfortunate and the <laughs> which which probably is unfortunate in this world but 10 years ago it was a distinctive brand in the kind of education college selection market if you will yeah, definitely. They actually sent me a picture of one of their book covers, which actually is a Boston University, which is where I went to school. And they, I don't think they knew that, but I recommend checking it out for anyone that's interested in seeing some old school Prowler college <laughs> things. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's so not how we talk about stuff now, you know, yeah. like it, that is not aged well. But this reminds me of one of my favorite times of my life, which is when I bought like the Kaplan College Guide whatever huge book of stuff. And I went through like every single page of that and read about like every single college in the US. And to me, it was just like a big book of opportunity. And the one last thing I'll say about niche is that a lot of the companies that, you know, are facing high growth in the ed tech space sell to students and parents because of the reputation that it's easier to sell to them versus school districts. I think niche shows an example of where higher ed is is paying money to get its name out there. So to me, that was also a nice refreshing change of B2B versus B2C. Well, I think you're seeing more and more startups. I and mean, we've seen this a lot in DevTools and particularly SaaS. You know, there are a bunch of startups trying to help SaaS companies sell their products to customers, right? Either being able to have sort of a playground where they can try the SaaS product tools. So think like a, an Airtable or a Notion, you can actually use it, demo it, learn how it works, and then sign up for it. I think that is actually something very similar, which is there's a huge market, obviously, trillions of dollars literally go to universities over periods of time. And those are still purchasing decisions. I mean, people ultimately choose one place or another. The vast majority of students don't go to a top university that's selective. The vast majority of students go to less selective universities. And so fundamentally, you know, the way you market, the way you position, the way you show that that image of the campus, you know, does influence the kind of the purchase decision. And so I think, you know, more and more VCs and more and more founders have sort of realize that if they can get into on the, the marketing side of, of the business, whether it's in dev tools or SaaS or colleges, there's a real opportunity to kind of build, you know, a high quality, durable product. Totally. Danny, I agree. And I feel like customer acquisition, you know, in a COVID world is, is much harder for college at this point. There were a bunch of other fintech rounds, including a tiny raise at a high valuation. And I, I actually read this before you published it and I thought it was fascinating. So uh, tell us about Duolingo. Yeah, so Duolingo raised $10 million from General Atlantic, which is an international venture capital firm that invests in ed tech companies you know, around China and other, other markets outside the United States. They said that they accepted the $10 million as part of their growing goal to help put money toward their English test feature. And this is Duolingo, which um, if for people who don't know, Duolingo is language learning platform. And they're getting into the English test space because people are willing to spend more money to learn English out of the States than, you know, most of us in the States even realize. There's a lot of money, a lot of parents that want their students to learn English. So Duolingo getting into it, accepting new capital, and more importantly, getting a new investor. You know, I, I remember eight years ago looking at Duolingo's seed round or something like this. And, you know, no one thought that language learning was important. Like Americans don't learn languages. I mean, it's one of the most fundamental. No, Amer Americans don't even have passports. They don't even visit places that speak other <laughs> yes. languages, let alone spend years, you know, like why would we care about the rest of the world? We have two oceans, both directions. But I think what everyone sort of converged and learned on is, is English is such an important 
tool for people around the world to learn that there are just enormous markets in Asia. I think we covered a, a startup two or three weeks ago out of Brazil that was headquartered in Holland. I'm forgetting its name right off top of mind. So there's just a huge amount of attention to the fact that, you know, in places like Korea, China, in Latin America, there's literally tens of billions of dollars. And most of that money is actually from consumers. It's not uh, schools buying these programs. It's literally one-on-one. -on -one. Um, it's tutors. It's it's books, it's uh, translation tools. And so it's a huge ed tech consumer market, which we just don't see very often in the United States. Also, Tosh, this was a secondary transaction, if I recall. So they bought more shares than just the 10 million in, in primary capital. Uh, do we know how much they bought? They did not disclose that, but it. me and Danny talked a little bit about it. Danny, I'd love for you to weigh in on what secondary transactions could mean or couldn't mean. With Duolingo's case, they said that they didn't need extra capital. So this was just a way to give General Atlantic more of a share in the company. And a pre-existing investor kind of unlocked, sold some of their shares to, to General Atlantic. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of reasons. So, so Duolingo, at least according to Crunchbase, was founded in 2011. So, you know, it's coming up on roughly 10 years. Um, so some of those investors have made their, you know, may have been there from the beginning. So think like the seed investors, the angel investors, et cetera, who may be looking for liquidity in and of themselves. A second piece to it is some investors just may not agree with the direction of the company, right? Maybe because they're moving overseas, they're going international, it's changing directions. You know, it may not be right or wrong, but some investors may not like that approach and they want to get out. And so I think, you know, the scale of the secondary transaction, unfortunately, is almost rarely disclosed, even to sometimes other shareholders, right? We may not, the other shareholders may not know what the actual cap table looks like. But at least for, from our perspective, I, I think of it as they, they kind of locked in a little bit of a price publicly to show that they were there. General Atlantic, my guess would be actually bought a lot, like yes. a lot, a lot, but I have no way of knowing that. But, you know, think, you know, potentially nine figures. I don't know, particularly at this valuation. It's at least for them, that's very doable. So, so to me, it's a, a huge stake into the company. It's not a primary balance sheet, so it's not dollars that Duolingo can use, but they do have a huge stake, right? Which means they're going to double down on the company. They're going to try to build partnerships with local partners in overseas markets and hopefully make Duolingo a huge success. Yeah. And it's worked out pretty well. I mean, Duolingo Plus, I think has over a million subscribers, uh, paying subscribers and a annual bookings run rate per Tosh's article of 140 million. Now, bookings is not the same thing as ARR. It's not the same thing as gap revenue. But it goes to kind of show the scale of the firm is quite large. It's nearly IPO ready. And so this is a firm that I think we're going to see an S1 from in, you know, a couple of weeks, couple, couple, couple quarters, a couple weeks. weeks. Imagine a couple of weeks. Yeah, Don't jump no. the gun. Sorry, I'm dreaming. <laughs> Last note I'll give about Duolingo is that they're based out of Pittsburgh. And that is exciting. I was born in Youngstown. No one, no one ever says anything exciting about Pittsburgh. So this is a huge, <laughs> yes. huge moment. One of my best friends from college is from uh, Pittsburgh, and he always talked about like terrible towels and the Steelers. It was a whole thing. Something like that. Yay, yeah. Pittsburgh. They have yeah. three rivers. That's what I know. That's what I remember. <laughs> hey, you know, I don't think we've ever said the word Pittsburgh on the show. Now we said it like six times. So shout out. All right. Pittsburgh. Uh, <laughs> speaking about smaller rounds, uh, Bonsai raised one and a half million to help students get kind of like one-on-one -on -one guidance. It, it, this is kind of a cool product. I, I read through the piece and I was thinking about it. What it does is it connects professionals in the market with students who need help. Because one thing we all know is that resumes get a bit lost in the mix. And so having someone who has actually gone through things to help you uh, figure out the best way to get into a job, especially at a competitive firm, is, is quite good. I think it's like 50 bucks per session, so it's not super unaffordable. And they're talking about ways to provide uh, access to people who are less privileged and don't have money. It's a tiny round and a company that isn't going to scale super easily. But I love seeing amidst all these larger ed tech rounds and kind of momentum plays, smaller things getting funded that could have real impact on kids' lives. And I love seeing things that will accelerate the youth forward to do as much as they can. I don't know if there's that much more to add about this one other than that Bonsai is a great name for a cool company and I really dig it. 
So I think the part about bonsai that is exciting to me is that they're being slightly conservative with how they're rolling out. They're making sure students get that one-on-one -on -one training and not trying to onboard too many students if there aren't enough tutors. We're seeing that with two other edtech startups right now, Juni Learning and Brainly. They're also in the peer-to-peer -peer teaching space. And Juni Learning, at least, is hiring 200 tutors. So um, I like the bonsai's being relatively conservative. One th company that we know that's been struggling by growing too quickly is actually Lambda School. Tosh, you wrote about yes. this in your EdTech Roundup. They were, you know, trying to grow the number of programs, a huge number of students, very, you know, quickly put together successive classes, I guess. They happen like pretty frequently after another. And that works out well sometimes, but it also doesn't work out other times. And EdTech, which is presumably around educating someone, there's a bit of a different standard for, for what's good enough, I think. I think Lambda School is a hard company to know exactly what the reason for those layoffs were it's like we talked about last week i believe it was a mix of of covid related reasons but also business fundamentals being at flaw so i i'm really interested and would love your guys's thoughts on like where income share agreements will will go in the next couple couple years i don't know if that's like too boring but i just think that that's such a it's already such a controversial bucket and now i'm like well jobs aren't being born so now what are jobs born or are they made? They <laughs> Cultivated, harvested. Cultivated. I wrote an ag tech piece. It's jobs are, it's the immaculate conception of jobs. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's just GOP fundamentalism. I think ISA has made a lot more sense, being serious about your question, Tosh. I think ISA has made a lot of sense when the job market was very tight. Because then every student who graduated had a pretty good chance of landing a job, probably above the, the threshold to, to repay. And so the model probably worked reasonably well. If all of a sudden your placement rate goes down by half, your revenue goes down by half. So mm -hmm. you're still putting the same amount of work, but you're seeing a lot less return from it. So, you know, when all of a sudden we go from very few unemployed people to more than 30 million in the U.S. in five weeks, it's going to punch a hole in that. So I would say that ISAs are a bit more cyclical and perhaps more affected by the um, state of the job market than people that were advocates of the model probably would have admitted six months ago. But I don't know. Danny, do you think they're going to come back, I guess, is the question? I mean, look, they're starting from nothing, right? So uh, to me, it's only growth. It's a question of whether they become so popular that they're the default choice for student debt as opposed to the 10-year kind of fixed mm -hmm. payment structure that's sort of like a mortgage. I, I actually think they will get more popular. I actually think they'll take over more of the market. I think they're going to take over certain majors like computer science, software engineering, where it's, it is sort of guaranteed that a reasonable job is going to come out on the other side. And then as more of the market market changes over to... ISAs, you know, you have this like moral hazard problem where, hey, if you're not looking to get an ISA, it probably means you're saying something that's not going to make a lot of money, or you want to pick a job career that's not going to make a lot of money. You want to do something in public health or public service or something like that. And so you're going to see more and more tension where, gee, you get really low rates. It's actually a really great deal in certain majors. It's actually a terrible deal in others. And, um, you know, to me, the risk pools, it's almost insurance, right? And at a certain mm -hmm. scale, it only makes sense. I don't want to say that the government does it, but I think you'll see a framework that the government launches similar to our current student loan model where you'll have servicers and lenders who will go under that framework who actually offer the cash and actually service the debt. But there's no infrastructure today at that level. You know, Lambda School works with a couple of folks to, to implement it for their program, but there's no kind of national system to handle this sort of model. All right. Well, we need to scoot on to the fundraising side of this. A company that I love raised a bunch of money, but sadly, I'm not in charge of this. So I have to have Danny jump in here. But uh, tell us about this round. 
I'm now so you tell me you love the company. So, so Figma, which is in the design space, announced this morning that it raised $50 million in a Series D led by Andreessen Horowitz at a $2 billion valuation, which I think puts it in one of the top slots for the design space. I think Envision's just a little bit ahead of it. That $2 billion valuation is a significant uptick from its Series C, which was a $40 million round announced in February 2019. And that was at a $440 million post-money valuation. So it is 5X'd in roughly one year, which has got to be one of the, I mean, outside of Notion, which is my favorite touchstone of like (laughs) crazy valuation, multiple increases. It has to be a real success story. And I think, you know, we had Jordan Crook talking about design apps a couple of weeks ago on Extra Crunch. It's a space that we've been focused deeply on, but there's just huge, huge money here as more and more designers and user experience and and user research join startups and, and large tech companies. They just need better tools. They need something better than PowerPoint, if you will, to to do their docs or, or, you know, scanning a notepad into a computer. So, you know, Figma, InVision, a variety of others, Canva have, have come to the fore and, and clearly huge excitement in the investment community for this. Yeah, I, I saw the in the story that they said that it was an opportunistic round versus a ne- like a round out of necessity. So that always does, you know, signal some sort of aggressive excitement um, when it doesn't need the cash that it's getting. Uh, I think the uh, the article also said they now have three or four years of runway, including cost expansions. So they have you know enough space to probably go all the way to going public if they wanted to. But what's funny about this round, reading this story, it just felt very 2019 to me. You know, it's, it's an under 18 month fundraise. It's a four or five X valuation jump. It's not that much of the company being sold. So the whole firm's being repriced at a relatively small, you know, transaction size. It's uh, it feels spicy. It feels hot. It feels cool, but not what we've heard lately from investors and startup founders about what's going on in the VC market. Um, I'll throw in there that Dylan Field, the the founder and CEO, is actually, in my experience, a nice guy, like a nice person. And I not often or not always are people that are the CEOs <laughs> of unicorns people that I like to sit next to. I I met uh, Dylan at a I think it was a Kleiner Perkins dinner. And I didn't know who he was. And so, you know, just sitting there talking, he was lovely. So, you know, it's it's cool to see people that seem to be nice people actually do well uh, in the business world. I was going to say, I, I'm also super bullish, bullish about the company. But one of the open questions to me is, you know, with all the layoff news, and we're going to talk a little bit about that later in the show, but designers are actually have a little bit of a target on their backs. You know, I have a couple of design friends who've been laid off from companies. Um, most firms are still in this process of believing in design and really becoming design first. You know, it's not something that's just automatic for a lot of startups even today. And so the the big question to me is, you know, in the industry, we went from this world of like one designer for every 30 engineers to one designer for every six engineers. But I wonder with the layoffs coming out, you know, when companies are having to make tough calls, you know, are they still going to invest in designers to design function as much as they have in the last couple of years? Because that directly goes, it's a per seat license kind of model and particularly around interaction. So the more designers in one company, the more the Figma becomes valuable. Do they do as well in the next year or two in the current environment that they have in the past? Yeah, I'm curious about that. I went through their pricing page before the show and I was surprised at how how robust their free tier is. So I think they're trying to provide a lot of value to kind of regular designers out there. But I will also note they squeeze pretty darn hard on the enterprise side. So the price goes up pretty quick per seat. So I think you can see where they make all their money. And I wonder if the enterprise customers that are buying these $45 per person per month per seat licenses are a bit less being buffeted around by the economic winds and therefore maybe more durable. But as we all know, even B2B SaaS is seeing higher churn uh, since the onset of COVID-19. So no one's really immune per se. I did want to talk about one one issue I had with one of his quotes. I'm sure he's a great person, but I feel like he said this, he said this, and I'll just repeat it verbatim. 
He said, when you think about the future of Silicon Valley, there is an interesting question around capital infrastructure being here and people not being able to access that if they're not here too. I got to see firsthand how a deal done online can work. And I think more and more investors aren't going to worry about whether you're in Silicon Valley or not. My issue with this is it, it just feels privileged in a way that white male founders are are going to benefit from a lo- like no more location bias. What we've heard from multiple investors, one's focused on diversity and one's not, is that they're they're unsure what this means for underrepresented founders. So if we're going to talk about access to capital, I think that you need to talk about gender bias versus location bias. Like I wish that the doors were flooding open, but which is what the quote makes it seems like, but I don't think that necessarily is what's happening. Can I spit that back to you to make sure that I'm following your your argument? Please. Okay, so Dylan made the point that because he raised this round effectively on Zoom, that maybe folks outside of Silicon Valley will have a, a better shot at raising more money. And then your point is that that may be the case, but will that opportunity be open to everybody, no matter who they are, with their background and so forth, as opposed to just like white dudes? Yeah. I think, I think the other answer here is, is, look, it's a SaaS company. It's a category-defining SaaS company, which mm-hmm. means at the end of the day, you don't actually have to meet anyone at the company to understand yeah. how it's doing. You know, to me, the the real divide is between revenue generating SaaS companies with very well-defined metrics that are comparable to everything else in the space. So someone like Figma can show its sales efficiency scores, it can show its AR growth, it can show its customer satisfaction, its net promoter scores. And look, if you look at all the data and it's amazing and it's top 1% in every category, you go, gee, I'm in at any price. Like, I'm just going to get my money in. I don't need to meet the team because the team is representing the numbers, right? If your sales team is dysfunctional, it shows up in the sales numbers. If your customer success team is punching customers in the face, like, it shows up in the NPS scores. <laughs> it's amazing how that, that works out well. And so to me, like, what actually worries me, kind of, kind of in the way that ISAs encourage you to go to certain majors versus others, what I, my fear is in the remote kind of funding space, if you will, remote as in like, you know, VCs funding companies where they haven't met the founder is it only works in one or two of these little buckets, right? Mm -hmm. It works in SaaS and it works in uh, maybe like marketplaces or some other kind of specific categories where you have really, really high quality and comparable data sets. But if you're a new consumer app and you're not Clubhouse, how do you have access, right? Because you actually have to sell the deck. You actually have to go into a room and convince someone to give you money when there's no proof on the board. And that's where I think the the challenges with gender, the challenges with race really kick in. And it's only worse when you can't do that in person. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think it would be fairer to say that I'm more worried about the seed and early stage market and how Zoom investing impacts it versus companies like Figma. And, you know, it's it's a, it's a deserved round, obviously. But I, I guess, yeah, my, my alarm bells came on when I was like, this needs to be taken with a grain of salt if it's applied to seed and early stage versus companies that have the metrics that show how healthy it is. And with that, we're going to go into the sad bits, um, the layoff news, because it wouldn't be equity in 2020 without an entire grip of of sadness. Um, I mean, guys, where, where do you want to begin? I mean, there's there's a lot. Do you want to do all the bad stuff first, then cap off with the the Clio thing, Tosh, or do you want to start with the good bits and just go downhill? Let's let's start with the good bits. Why not? Okay. So Sarah Kunst, who founded Clio Capital, a investment firm that's investing in underrepresented founders, launched a fellowship that's specifically for people who have been laid off from you know tech unicorns smaller um, startups. And 
she actually started this fellowship because when she was graduating college in 2008, she was working at Chanel in the fashion industry. She got laid off and that's how she got into the world of startups. She's been at 500 startups, I believe was a scout for Sequoia as well. I thought it was a smart way to support people. It, it doesn't have as robust of a accelerator incubator type feel, but think of it more as like a safe place for people who maybe don't have an idea or don't even know if they want to start a startup to go and and talk with fellow people who are laid off. Sadly, an increasingly large bucket of folks, especially people that got their internships pulled, that haven't finished their MBA yet. I mean, a lot of folks had a lot of stuff that was just planned out like minutes away that got canceled, curtailed, brought down to zero. It's it's pretty brutal to listen to all the stories about this. Stories that we're now going to add to. So should we do Jewel, Lyft, or TripAdvisor, guys? I mean, they're all pretty much catastrophes. Uh, let's do TripAdvisor because that's a public company. So I'll take that one. TripAdvisor is a company that had a share price of over $100 a share and is now worth about 20 after years of declines. So it's a company that's been suffering for some time. And they announced recently they're going to cut about 25% of their workforce or 900 employees. The CEO put together a, a relatively honest blog post. It seems to be kind of the new thing to do to talk publicly about choices you're making inside of a firm. And there was a multiple phased approach. You know, the first phase was you know, curtail certain expenses, try to preserve headcount, and then phase two. And then phase three was steep cuts. And so we're seeing this this firm furlough and cut heavily. And it seems that no matter what the company is, if it's in the travel space, it's been it's been damaged. I don't know if you guys have had a chance to read a lot of the Airbnb stuff, but it just, you know, we're seeing anything that touches people moving around just get just get beat up. And on that note, uh Danny, have you been following the Lyft and Uber layoffs stuff lately? I have. Yeah. So I'm curious. We saw Lyft lay off nearly a thousand people this week and there were rumors the day before that Uber might make huge cuts. Do you think the Uber cuts are kind of baked in at this point that they're going to come or do you think Uber might be able to avoid the the layoff slice? Uber's uh, it's interesting because Uber actually has a little bit more, better of a business than Lyft in this context, right? Because even though rides and uh, shared rides are down, Uber Eats is way up, right? Everyone's ordering food delivery. In fact, uh, Uber is moving more and more drivers onto the eat side from the ride side. It doesn't necessarily help the company's bottom line. The company seems to lose money on everything, like on a, on a gap basis, but it, it is in a little bit better sh- shot. But we heard from the information, um, which had some internal sources that said that they're targeting a 20% cut or possibly around 5,400 jobs. And and again, we don't know a lot of the details there. We don't know. Uh, Uber has a huge administrative staff to handle all of its riders and, and uh, drivers uh, and licensing around that. And so what will be interesting to see, I think, is we will... The company will have to come up with a plan here shortly. They'll, they'll have to be public. I think now that Lyft has come clear you know, on what they're going to do, the markets are really going to demand a, a clear path forward for them. And and we're now weeks into the coronavirus situation. And you know, look, the, the data is on the wall. So you got to make a call on where you're going to land. I think Uber's earnings are on May 7th and Lyft maybe May 6th or the other way around, but they're about a week away. So we're about to get their Q1 performance and they're, they're going to have to talk about Q2 and what's, what's going to be happening. Both have withdrawn their 2020 guidance. Though, if I recall the nuance of this correctly, Uber has withdrawn its 2020 guidance, but has not withdrawn its target for a Q4 positive adjusted EBITDA, which is weird because surely if it's not going to hit 2020 guidance, it's not going to hit that number in Q4. Maybe they're expecting a sharper recovery before they, they pull that number. I don't know. The lift layoffs, by the way, were 17% and they furloughed another 288. They cut uh, executive salaries, VP salaries, and everyone else in decreasing amounts. So the less senior you were, the smaller of a pay cut you saw. Even the board's taking a pay cut over a lift. So they're trying to pull out all the stops to maintain a cash position that makes sense. And we'll see what happens to Uber, which uh, also lost its CTO. So it's just kind of a, a big bucket of sad in the transportation market. And speaking of that, sorry, uh, Lime 
also undergoing layoffs following Bird this week. So, whew, guys. Ooh, exhale. Um, yeah. I, I also wanted to, to note that a story I have coming out soon is looking at the <laughs> breakdown of how these cuts have impacted specific roles more than others. Breaking news, it's not just salespeople that are being cut off, but we're also seeing, you know, large percentages of engineers being cut. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of folks outside of the startup world forget that, um, you know, sales folks have a huge percentage of their uh, comp in, in commissions, right? So if they don't actually sell, they automatically take a pay cut. And in this environment, they will take a pay cut. So your sales folks are already taking potentially 20, 30, 40% comp cuts just for the fact that sales are going to slow down. And so, you know, there's less to cut there in the first place than if you're cutting in engineering or design or some of the other product-focused roles. And engineers are famously expensive, especially in and around Silicon Valley, where Uber and Lyft have a lot of staff. So if you're going to make a cut, there you go. Looking ahead. Oh, actually, no, I'm so sorry. We have to do the fun thing first. We're having, a new, to... we're having a new segment of the show where Danny know, updates I'm so, us. I'm so excited. <laughs> Welcome to Luck and Watch with Danny Crichton. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess that was my my prompt. Uh, so so Luck and Coffee was we've loved this on this show for two years. So we, we watch it all the way on the way up, and then dive down eighty ninety percent overnight because of fraud. Luckin was supposed to report its annual financials yesterday, uh, Thursday, uh, April thirtieth, but it uh, actually filed with the SEC that following the SEC's guidance that companies can delay financings related to coronavirus, it has said that it will be unable, given the coronavirus situation to file its annual finances on time. And it didn't. It, it did reference the fact that they're having an internal investigation and the stock is down 90%. But I just thought it was cute to think of like, you know, it's about coronavirus. We're seeing the story more and more about companies that are like fundamentally flawed and fundamentally were not sustainable businesses going like, well, the coronavirus, otherwise we would have been fine. You know, quote unquote, we work. Uh, but it's like, uh, you know, this was a particularly galling example of this, but we won't be talking about Luckin, but we will be talking about a lot of other earnings because we're going to have a special episode of Equity debuting on Saturday, an Equity Shot, which I think, I think Alex, the last time you and I did one was on Tesla. Was that the last Equity Shot we did? We used to do a lot of them. We, we've we used to do a lot of them and bit. then we, we, we all started drinking Luckin coffee and we just started getting distracted <laughs> by... Internal fraud. I'm trying to figure that out. It is. It is earnings week, and we didn't include earnings in the show today. So we're going to include Tesla, or not Uber, Tesla, Apple, Samsung, all kinds of fun stuff Microsoft, um, coming Facebook. up. Microsoft companies you've heard of before that mostly make money. Perhaps it's a little bit different from our normal normal equity fair. So we'll all be together. Uh, we're recording that tomorrow, debuting on Saturday. Catch it. Anyways, this has been Regular Equity. We'll be back in a hot second with the earnings special edition. But in the meantime, Danny Tosh, as always, lovely to see you, and we'll be right back. I guess to me personally, stylistically, I don't mind it because I try to be casual, but I, I can see Danny, how with your East coast vibe and you're more, you're more, you know, you know, um, fealty to formality, your obsession with rules and manners, you might find it to be a bit crude and crass and from the countryside. It's like, I'll put on pants next time. Okay. Hold on. I'm going to put on my, I'm going to put on my tech crunch live pants. 